you read all of Amos, you'll see that it actually begins with a lot of condemnation. Amos was a, a shepherd who was called by God to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, he spoke around 740 B.C. It was in 722 B.C. that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And most of Amos's words are a prophetic word of condemnation because the people of Israel have rebelled against God. And yet he ends his book with these final words of encouragement. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Wine was a, a much more common beverage uh, in ancient Israel than it even is in the United States today. In fact, uh, next to olives, grapes were the most uh, produced fruit by the people of Israel. And wine was something you would always have as a sign of celebration, particularly at a wedding feast. Uh, in fact, there was a, a legal expectation that you would provide enough wine. We have ancient records that indicate to us that if the groom did not provide the right amount of wine, he could not only be shamed for the rest of his life and ostracized socially, but he could even be held financially liable. You see, back then, people would travel miles to go to a wedding feast or celebration. It could often last an entire week. And it was expected that the groom would do his share, fair share by providing food and enough beverage for that week, particularly wine. That was the beverage of choice since it was a celebration. And these guests would travel miles at, at their own expense and bring great costly gifts to help celebrate this feast, this wedding. And if the groom didn't do his part, well, he could be held financially liable. It's in the context, this cultural context, that we turn to our New Testament text, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It may be found on page 1129 of your Red Pew Bible. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, just a quick word on the Gospel of John. John is the fourth Gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written before John. John knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so John, John's gospel is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As, as Paul Harvey likes to say, you know, Paul Harvey was the one who would always tell the rest of the story. John tells the rest of the story of what Jesus did in his ministry. In fact, it's interesting. John actually omits many of the miracles that are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John makes a point to tell us about seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus did before he went to Jerusalem to be crucified. In fact, most biblical scholars look at the Gospel of John and they say that uh, John, beginning with John chapter 2 all the way to John chapter 11, these are the book of signs, they call it, because it talks about the seven signs, the seven miracles that Jesus does to help point and reveal his, to his divinity. But these seven signs not only reveal the divinity of Jesus, but they also help instruct us on how we should live today. To see how we are to live in light of these seven signs, I would encourage you to turn to the first sign that we find in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the God who makes yourself known to us. You have revealed your divinity in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, your power through his miraculous signs. We know that these are not just signs that are intended to point us to you, but they're signs that are intended to 
to change us, to make us more into the image of your Son. So God, I pray that as we read about these signs, that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your Son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to, down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Why does Mary care so much that they have run out of wine? Is this really her problem? Notice that Jesus' response to his mother is, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus seems to indicate that the fact that the, the groom has run out of wine is not his problem either. So why is Mary so concerned that the groom has run out of wine? After all, we know the circumstances surrounding Mary's own marriage. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus, that when she was a virgin, she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus. And so when Mary was just a teenager, while she was betrothed, engaged to Joseph, she becomes pregnant, which was a scandal beyond scandal in the first century Jewish community. And if you remember from Matthew, Joseph had intended to leave Mary to divorce her, as it says, or to break off the engagement. But then an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and tells her that tells him that he should go ahead and, and marry Mary because the baby inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. Yes, Joseph knew that this baby was not his. He had never been with Mary. Mary was, in fact, a virgin. And so Mary has to have a a shotgun wedding, so to speak, a kind of wedding that nobody wants to have when the, when the bride is pregnant. It, it, she probably did not have an elaborate wedding considering the, the scandalous circumstances of her pregnancy. 
is there was too much shame in being pregnant before one was married in the first century. She was a virgin, and, and well, no one had ever heard of a virgin giving birth before. Which reminds me of a, a story, a modern story. There was a teenage girl also named Mary and who was constantly getting sick every morning. And so her mother was concerned about her. So she took her daughter, Mary, uh, to the doctor. And after running a series of tests, the doctor came back and said, well, I have some good news for you. I know exactly why Mary gets sick every morning. She's pregnant. Congratulations. Well, the mother was not at all pleased to hear this news. She shook her head and said, this is not possible. My little Mary is a virgin. She's a perfect angel. She would not have sex with a, a boy before marriage. She knows that's, well, that's a sin. That, that, that's against God's word, and she would not do that. My Mary doesn't sin. In fact, she's never been on a date with a boy. She's never kissed a boy. She's never even held the hand of a boy. There's no way that she could be pregnant. My little Mary is a virgin. You need to go do some more tests. Your tests must be wrong. Well, having heard this, the doctor walked over to the window east on the east side of his office, pulled the blinds, and began to look outside. Frustrated that the doctor seemed to be ignoring her, the mother once again chimed in and said, aren't you going to do some more tests? I've told you, my daughter Mary is a virgin, and there's no way she could be pregnant. The doctor quietly shook his head and said, no, there's no need for any more tests. I know that your daughter is pregnant. But the last time this sort of thing happened, there were some wise men that came from the east bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I don't want to miss it. (laughs) So he continued to look outside, waiting for those wise men to show up. By the way, happy Epiphany Sunday. Uh, This is the Sunday that we celebrate that the wise men did come from the east bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why we still have our holiday decorations. It's not because we're lazy. Uh, It's actually Epiphany Sunday. In fact, if you've still got your lights up on your house, you still have one more day of an excuse and say, I'm celebrating Epiphany Sunday. I haven't put them up yet, but tomorrow you have no excuse, so you should probably put them up today if you can't. Yes, today is Epiphany Sunday. We celebrate that these wise men came to, to give gold, incense, and myrrh. And it was the most unusual of circumstances that Mary gave birth to Jesus as we celebrate every Christmas. Yes, most likely Mary's marriage to Joseph wasn't a big celebration, a week-long celebration. There was probably too much shame regarding those circumstances. And so Mary probably cares so much about the groom that most scholars tell us was probably a relative of hers. And she cares for that bride, that young bride, that she wants to make sure that they have a a wedding celebration that will bring them great memories of delight, not shame. In fact, most New Testament scholars tell us that Mary probably, because she most likely was a relative of the groom, probably had some role in helping prepare and plan that wedding celebration. Mary is concerned that this couple have a great wedding celebration, not one that would be governed by shame because they ran out of wine. Regardless of why Mary is so concerned, notice that Mary knows her son Jesus can fix the problem. That's why she tells Mary they have no wine. The implication is that Jesus has a way to fix the problem. Now, did Mary know that Jesus could turn water into wine? Had he done this kind of trick before? Well, nothing in the Bible indicates that Jesus had ever turned water into wine before. In fact, in verse 11, we just read, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, the Greek word for sign here can also be translated as miracle, but most modern English translations are very careful to translate verse 11 as the first of his signs, not the first of his miracles. 
You see, a sign communicates something. A sign points to something greater than itself. According to John chapter 2, verse 11, this sign points to the glory, it reveals the glory of Jesus. How is it specifically, though, that this sign of turning water into wine points to the glory of Jesus? I mean, if you'll remember way back in Exodus, one of the first signs that Moses does, one of the first plagues is he turns water of the Nile, water into blood. But even the magicians of Pharaoh can turn water into blood. And nowhere in the Exodus text does it say that, well, that this miracle was pointed to the glory of God because it was something that the, well, that the magicians could do. Turning water into something else doesn't seem to be that remarkable. Both Moses and Pharaoh's magicians were able to turn water into blood. So why is it that this sign is so significant of turning water into wine. How is it that it points to the glory of Jesus? In fact, I've always wondered why of all the miracles that John could have described, that he he makes a point to to describe this one first. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't don't even mention Jesus turning water into wine. And yet John makes a point to make sure that it's the first sign that he describes. In fact, we know from John chapter 20, Verse 30 to 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did so many other signs, and yet John makes a point to describe this sign because he, he saw that this sign helped lead the disciples to faith. Yes, there are a lot of signs, a lot of works, a lot of wonders that Jesus did, but John doesn't describe all of them. In fact, the very last verse of his gospel, John chapter 21, verse 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. There isn't room to tell everything that Jesus did, and so John only describes a few signs. In fact, he only describes seven signs. So why is it so important that John makes the point to describe this sign, this sign of turning water into wine? After all, in Scripture, we have a very mixed message when it comes to wine and alcohol. Specifically, in 1 Timothy, we see that Paul encourages Timothy, his son in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, he says, No longer drink only water, but also a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In the first century, it was believed that wine had some medicinal purposes, that it could help someone with stomach problems. But also in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 18, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Scriptures constantly warn us about the, the troubles, the temptations of getting drunk on wine, for it leads to debauchery. In fact, in Proverbs 23, verse 29 to 33, we read this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, 
Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your hearts utter perverse things. As we all know, people have made some really poor choices under the influence of alcohol. I read an article in the Washington Post recently that makes a clear connection between binge drinking in college and sexual assaults. In most sexual assaults, alcohol or drugs are clearly involved. A survey found that college-age women who admit to binge drinking are twice as likely to be victims of sexual assault or apparent sexual assault attempts when those who avoid binge drinking have less likely chances. Because people make very poor choices under the influence of alcohol. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention reports that excessive alcohol use leads to approximately 88,000 deaths a year. Mothers Against Drunk Driving report that in Texas alone, we had 1,438 deaths caused by drunk driving. People have made some very poor choices under the influence of alcohol. And we know today that alcoholism, it's a disease. It's not something you can cure yourself of. You're going to need God's help and the help of a community to overcome an addiction to drug or alcohol. That's why our church actually has a Sunday school class. It's called B12. It helps uh, study the Bible through the Life Recovery Bible and does a workbook to help people understand the 12 steps, steps of AA from a Christian perspective. It meets in room 205, and it's open to anyone who is either wrestling with an addiction or has a family member who's wrestling with an addiction. Any of us who have experienced a family member wrestling with an addiction to drugs or alcohol know the pain that it can cause, the way that it can break relationships, the, the damage that it can do. So why, of all the miracles Jesus could do, why is it that the first sign he does is he turns water into wine when the scriptures clearly warn us about getting drunk on wine and how wine can, can be a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. I have often wondered why, why after Mary tells Jesus that they've run out of wine... Jesus doesn't just respond and say, Mom, look, they have no wine because they've been drinking too much. Okay, Mom? Let's just let it go. These people are drunk. In fact, the word there talks about having drunk too much. It's also the word that would describe them as drunk. When the, when the, the uh, master of the ceremony says, Look, people wait till they've already had their full of drink. Well, these people have been drinking a lot. I'm surprised Jesus doesn't just quote Proverbs 20, verse 1. It says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. I'm not going to contribute to the problem here, Mom. I'm going to stop this. We need to stop these. People should just be drinking water anyway. They need to sober up. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus responds to his mother's request, even though it's not his time, by turning water into wine. I can be honest with you, my mom is a Southern Baptist background, my dad is Methodist, and my mom's side was always prohibiting drink of any kind, as if the Bible somewhat sort of said, you shall not drink. It's not the 11th commandment. <laughs> but it does say that we shouldn't get drunk on wine, so there's a healthy balance there. But as we've seen in Amos, wine is a sign of, it's a sign of blessing. It's a sign of celebration. And so Jesus wants to bless this couple. Jesus wants to reveal at least to his disciples and those stewards, his glory. Yes, despite the potential dangers of alcohol that we read about in Proverbs and in Genesis, we remember the story of Lot and his daughters. That was a mess when he got drunk. Don't do that. <laughs> Jesus turns water into wine. And John makes a point 
to tell us about this sign, the first miracle that Jesus did. What is the significance of this sign exactly? Why does John make a point to tell us about this sign when the other Gospels fail to mention it? Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. John's gospel is written to Jews living in a Greek context. And every first century Jew would have read this description about the fact that there were stone, six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, would have known that six is the number of incompletion. Six is not enough. Seven is a number of fullness and wholeness. After all, it was on the seventh day that God rested. He created creation and and rested on the seventh day. Yes, seven is a holy number, but six is a number of incompletion. In fact, the beast we read in Revelation, Satan, uh, his number is 666. A number of incompleteness. Six represents a number of fallenness, of brokenness. And there were just six stone water jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. These stone jars of water would not be enough to cleanse the wedding guest. They were incomplete. Now we know from Mark 7 that Jews would not eat unless they washed their hands, properly holding to the tradition of the elders. In fact, in Mark 7, Pharisees get on to Jesus because they notice that his disciples are not washing their hands as they should. And for obvious health reasons, it's good for us to wash our hands, but we don't believe that it's washing our hands that will make us clean. For Jesus goes on to tell his disciples in Mark 7, 14 to 23, he says, And he called to the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters in not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Jews were saying, We've got to wash your hands so that you'll be clean from the inside. But the fact is, it's not what goes in the man that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out that ultimately defiles him, that makes him unclean. It's not the six water jars used for Jewish purification that are going to make the people clean. They're going to need something greater than the water that these Jewish jars can provide. They're going to need more than water. They're going to need the wine from the kingdom of God. I know this is juice. We serve juice because we recognize as Presbyterians that some people may wrestle with alcohol. And so in sensitivity to our brothers and sisters who may wrestle with that, we always offer juice. But the Greek word is oinos. It means wine. They had a word for juice. What they, Jesus produced that day was, was wine. It was fermented. In fact, it was fermented well, so well that the master of the feast would say, man, some people save the 
the, the good wine only for the first and give the bad wine at the end, the, 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 the not-so-fermented wine, but you have saved the best for last. And Jesus doesn't just provide a little bit of wine. No, he provides six jars full times 20, 180 gallons at least. More than enough for the kingdom, more than enough for this celebratory feast. It's this wine that Jesus produces, turns water into wine, foreshadows the wine that will be provided in the kingdom of God at that final wedding feast where men and women will gather from north and south and east and west to sit at table in the kingdom of God to celebrate God's provision. And we know that the wine at this table isn't just wine. No, as Jesus says, it represents his blood shed for us. His blood that cleanses us from all our sins. As that old hymn says, What can take away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing more than... I've forgotten the words. (laughs) I've written them up here. (laughs) I didn't grow up singing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. John reports this first sign because this sign points to this table, which ultimately points to the cross where our sins are atoned for, where the glory of God in all its fullness is ultimately revealed, as Jesus says on the cross in the Gospel of John, it is finished, our sins have been atoned for. And then on the third day, Jesus rises again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. Yes, this is a critical sign for us to understand and to embrace because it reveals God's great love for us. Jesus explains in John 15, no greater love is there than this than a man who is willing to die for his friends. Yes, Jesus has paid the ultimate price so that we might be saved, so that our sins might be atoned for. And Jesus didn't do this while we were worthy. No, Jesus does this while we were yet sinners, as Paul will explain in his letter, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This table, this cross, point to the great love God has for us. It's an unconditional, sacrificial love. And in gratitude for that love, therefore we should do what Mary tells the servants to do. Do whatever he tells you. I love the way R.C. Sproul comments on this verse. He says, no one ever received better instructions from anybody in all of history than these servants received from the mother of Christ when she told them to follow Jesus' orders. I like the way that Eugene Peterson translates uh, John 2, verse 5. He says, whatever he tells you, do it. Whatever he tells you, do it. Let's say it together. Whatever he tells you, do it. So what is Jesus telling us to do exactly? Well, I don't know what your New Year's resolutions are for this year, and maybe you've already failed some of those, but something you might consider doing this year 
is taking some time to read through the Sermon on the Mount. Many years ago, I was blessed to take a class from Dallas Willard, who has written many uh, Christian books, and he told me that one of the best things I could do for my own discipleship is to read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He said, if you could read that every day for a month, I promise you God will move and change you. Well, I started doing that. I not only read it for a month, I ended up reading it for three months straight. Where almost I have the words ingrained in my memory, much better than that song I just forgot. (laughs) What does Jesus tell us to do in the Sermon on the Mount? He tells us that when someone insults us, we are to turn the other cheek. We are to pray for our enemies. He tells us that when we give, we should not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We should give in secrecy. We should fast in secrecy. We should pray in such a way that we don't bring attention to ourselves, but we quietly pray, praying the Lord's Prayer that we find in the Sermon on the Mount, in the very middle of Jesus' sermon. It should be in the very middle of the life of a disciple. We should pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Yes, Jesus tells us that we should not judge others, that we should not look at the speck in our brother's eye before we take the log out of our own eye. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we should live in such a way that we, well, that we treat others the way that we would like to be treated. He gives us the golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, if you've never read through the Sermon on the Mount, I would encourage you, spend some time with the Sermon on the Mount. It's only three chapters. Read it every day for a month, as Dallas Willard told me to do. You'll find that it begins to transform your thinking as you begin to try to live out what Jesus calls us to do. But what does Jesus tell us to do in John? The principal commandment that Jesus gives us in John is John 13, 34 to 35. He says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. What is Jesus telling us to do? He's telling us to love each other. But on our own, that's hard. How is it possible for us to love others? How is it possible for us to pray for our enemies? How is it possible to to do these things, to go that extra mile, to turn the other cheek, when it seems intuitively not always practical by remembering how much Jesus loved us by remembering that he sacrificed for us remembering that he forgives us not just seven times but seven times 70 a limitless number of times that Christ forgives us and so we should seek to forgive others remembering how Jesus on the cross prayed for those who persecuted him it's by taking time to remember all that Jesus has done for us we will find that by the power of the Holy Spirit it will be much easier to do what he tells us to do by remembering that he's already done it for us. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we all deserve. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. He has given us a living example of what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now we just need to submit our lives to him and do whatever he tells us. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who has made yourself known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You're the God who has revealed this wonderful sign of turning water into wine, a preview of the heavenly banquet that we will all celebrate one day. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to come to this table to worship you, to thank you for your love, to thank you for your body given for us, your blood shed for us. We thank you, Lord, for how you miraculously use these elements to nourish us and to strengthen us for the journey ahead and how you use these elements by the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us ever closer into your presence that we might be reminded of your love, that we might better reflect your love to a broken and hurting world. 
Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do whatever Jesus has told us to do so that the glory of Jesus might be revealed in our lives. That as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, others may see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ and all God's people said, Amen. In response to God's amazing grace, let's continue our worship by giving God's tithes and our offerings.